0: Fourth of July. I realize that many of you uh, have been on vacation. I sent you an email this past week, uh, but again, I realize some of you on vacation, maybe you haven't had access to your email or haven't read it. Um, But uh, some of you know that a month and a half ago or so, we did a little campaign to raise $15,000 as a church in order to work with an organization called RIP Medical Debt. And uh, with that $15,000, RIP Medical Debt would eliminate uh, we hoped a million uh, five, 1.5 million dollars of medical debt for people in the Evansville area. Uh, I'm really excited to tell you that RIP Medical Debt contacted me a week and a half or two weeks ago, telling us that that $15,000 actually eliminated 4.4 million dollars of debt for 5,000 families in the Evansville area. So thank you for your uh, participation in that. And then I also just wanted to say, you know, we about that same time we did a campaign. Uh, called Engage, where we're trying to encourage one another to engage the needs of the people of the city of Evansville. And uh, since that campaign, you guys have done over 900 uh, acts of love in this community that you've recorded on lynevv.org, that website. Thank you so much for all that you've been doing. And it it is a reminder to me of an encouragement to me uh, that Christ is working in the lives of people in this church. Thank you uh, so very much. For those of you who are visiting this morning, we're in a series of sermons about the family, and it's called the family tree. Today, I want to talk about the tendency that many families have to live with destructive amounts of secrecy and denial. Some of you grew up in families with toxic levels of secrecy and denial. I read an article recently in which uh, people described some of the secrets and denials that their families lived with. Maybe some of this will sound uh, familiar even to some of you. There's a lady that wrote about that New Year's Eve, she said, when my mom tried to commit suicide by swallowing a bunch of antidepressant pills. For years, everyone has acted like it didn't happen. She doesn't want to talk about it. Here's another one. A lot of, my, a lot of people in my family are alcoholics. It's okay to acknowledge they drink a lot. It's not okay to call them alcoholics, even when they do things like routinely pass out on their front lawn, get a huge number of DUIs, drink so much that they get fired. All those incidents can be discussed so long as no one mentions alcoholism. Here's another one. My father had an affair, and I have a half-brother that we don't tell anyone about. Maybe one of those sounds very familiar to you, or maybe your family of origin had other secrets that they lived with that were more or less serious. But as you think about your own family, or perhaps the family that you hope to have one day, here's something that you need to understand, and I want to say this in uh, terms that are as simple as possible so that you can't miss it. Secrecy and denial are crazy-making for the members of a family. Secrecy and denial are crazy-making for members of the family on many different levels, and we'll talk about those in just a moment. But secrecy and denial don't work for anyone. The question is, how can you build your family without all of the crazy-making secrets and denials, and all of the guilt and the shame that come with it? And what difference, by the way, if any, does Christ make to building a family without all of the secrets and all of the denials? Well, turn in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament. Uh, Romans chapter 5, it's in the New Testament. While you're turning there, I just want to take a moment to remind you of the idea behind the family tree title of this series. Why do we call it that? Well, the Bible says that there are two trees that dictate the approach uh, we take to life, depending upon which tree you choose. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve ate from as an act of rebellious independence against God. And as we've seen in the uh, previous weeks, the fruit, if you will, the metaphorical fruit of that tree is the idea that life is all about measuring up. It's all about performing. The other tree that dictates the way we approach life, or that can dictate the way that you approach life, is the cross of Jesus Christ, and which we've seen in previous weeks is actually referred to as a tree at some places in the Bible. Building your life around one of these trees leads to secrecy and denial in the family. Building your life around the other tree leads to openness and wholeness and healing. Which is which? You guess. Let's read Romans chapter 5 from verse 1. Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, uh, I want to just tell you from the outset where I want to go in the next few minutes. I want to start by showing you from this verse a mind-blowing theological doctrine. (laughs) That's where I want to start. And then after we get through that, I want to talk about the belief that fuels secrecy and denial in the family. And then finally, I want to talk about the cure for secrecy and denial uh, in the family. So I want to start. Let's start with this mind-blowing theological doctrine because I think it's important to understand this so that we can talk about why families practice, secrecy, and denial. And when I say mind-blowing theological doctrine, I, I realize right off the bat that that probably sounds like hype to some of you. You wonder, honestly, can any doctrine really be that mind-blowing? But, I, but I'll tell you this: I'll tell you this, the reason that the emotional and the psychological well-being of many people who believe in Christ isn't much different than the rest of the world is that they don't understand this one mind-blowing theological doctrine. Once you get it, and once you start to work it into your life, you'll never be the same, and that isn't hype. Because good psychology is good theology made personal. And the mind-blowing theological doctrine that I'm talking about is summarized by three words in verse 1, justified uh, through faith. If you've never underlined, if you've never highlighted words in the Bible, make sure you underline or highlight these, because all of Christianity hinges on these three words, justified through faith. Now, I'm going to explain that. Stick with me here. Uh, the word for justified is the Greek word dikaio. Uh, dikaio was a legal term uh, for the, in, in the first century that the writer of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, uh, it's a legal term that he used to convey this mind-blowing theological doctrine. So I want you to just imagine for a moment, in order to understand this, I want you to imagine for, uh, for the moment that you're being tried for a crime that you have been accused of. You're being tried in a courtroom. The judge, with his black robes and gavel, sits behind his raised desk. You, the accused, sit at a table with your attorney. Prosecuting attorney sits at his table, having marshaled every evidence that he can to prove that you're guilty. And it's time for the verdict. The jury comes in. The judge asks you to stand. He asks the four-person to read the verdict. Your heart is beating wildly. Your future rides on these next few seconds, and what the four, four person says, guilty or innocent. The person clears her throat. She reads from the paper in her hand. And she says, we, the jury, find the defendant. And For the first time in a very long time, hope surges through your veins. You close your eyes in relief, tears come to your eyes, you pump your fist, you mouth thank you to the jury because dikayo means that you have been declared not guilty. But not only not guilty, it's more than that. Dikayo is a complete vindication. It means that as to the law and the crime that you have been accused of, you have been found to be perfectly righteous. This jury is saying that you have followed the law to a T. You are completely righteous and the prosecutor is absolutely wrong. You have been completely vindicated, and your loved ones are crying, and they're hugging you, and they're hugging each other, and you turn and look at the prosecuting attorney, and you can't help but gloat, maybe a sarcastic wink, because justice, at least in this case, tastes so sweet. That's what dikaio means. It means that you've been declared not guilty, not just not guilty, but perfectly, completely righteous. And this word dikaio is so important that the entire Protestant Reformation hinged on this one word. There was this Catholic monk. His name was Martin Luther. He lived in the 16th century. Trust me now, I'm going to get to secrecy and denial in the family in just a moment. But we've got to get through this. Let me, let me just make sure you understand this. Uh, there was this Catholic monk, Martin Luther, lived in the 16th century. When Luther uh, was 21 years old, he was walking through a thunderstorm. And uh, if, you've ever, <laughs> like if you've ever done something where you swear to God that if he saves you from something, you'll become a missionary or something. You're, you'll get what happens here. Luther's walking through a thunderstorm, and a lightning bolt hit the ground right next to him, literally hit the ground right next to him. He was so thankful to still be alive, he screamed, I'll become a monk. And so he goes into the priesthood, and he throws himself into it, doing all of the stuff that monks were supposed to do, prayer, fasting, you know, ascetic practices like going without sleep, Uh, Like they would endure a bone-chilling cold intentionally without a blanket, flagellating themselves, all of this stuff that monks were supposed to do. But no matter what Luther did, no matter how carefully he obeyed the rules, no matter how harshly he treated himself, he had enough self-awareness to realize that it still wasn't enough. He could follow every one of those rules he was supposed to follow. treat himself as harshly as he wanted, but he couldn't change the sinfulness of his heart. And so he actually said... Listen to this, that as a monk, he actually said that he came to hate God. Like he dreaded God. He could only think of God as his tormentor and as his punisher. Because Luther understood it was never enough. No matter what he did, he could never get right with God. But then as he was studying this book of Romans, he came across this word, dikiao, ah, oh, justified, and it changed his life. He said he actually felt like a new person, like he was reborn, that he became a completely new person living in a completely new world, he said. And the guilt that he had lived with all of his life melted away. The, inter- the internal pressure that he lived with was relieved, and his hatred of God turned into affection for God. Now why? Why one word? Why, why would one word have that kind of impact? Because Luther realized the mind-blowing reality of this word, dikaio. The mind-blowing reality was that God found a way to declare sinful people, not guilty, even more, perfectly righteous. And it was through Christ, not by our pitiful efforts at morality. Christ is the only one who could ever live a perfect life, and he did, in fact, all the way to the cross where he paid for our guilt. So God could remain He could be just in that he didn't wink at our sins and say, oh golly gosh, your sins, no big deal. No, it was a big deal, such a big deal that Christ had to be crucified for our sins. But by allowing that to happen, God could now declare those who put their faith in Christ not guilty, but even more than that, righteous. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in the previous chapter of Romans. Watch this. He says, to the one who doesn't work, in other words, by work he means doesn't try uh, to earn, doesn't try to perform, doesn't try to uh, become righteous to God on his own. To one, to one who doesn't work but trusts God, who, notice what it says, and I've put this in all caps, justifies the ungodly. Their faith in Christ, of course, is credited as righteousness. That's the word, dikaios. And Luther came up with this very famous phrase to describe this mind-blowing concept. And here was the phrase, simul justus et peccator. It's Latin, and it means simultaneously righteous and a sinner. In other words, through faith in Christ, I am legally righteous before God. He declares me legally righteous, and yet I'm also on a practical basis, a sinner at the same time. Like somehow, in some mind-blowing way, God has found a way to say, you're perfectly righteous, and yet at the same time, you know, and everyone around you knows, you're a sinner. Like on the one hand, if I have any degree of self-awareness, I know I'm a sinner, I screw up, I make bad choices, I have mixed motives, even when I do the right thing, I'm self-centered, greedy, covetous, lustful, unloving, and all of that before I even get out of bed in the morning. But because the blood of Christ covers me, that isn't how God sees me. He sees me the same way. He sees Christ, righteous, worthy, like a sparkling, flawless diamond. As righteous and worthy as Christ himself. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has the audacity to claim something like that. Buddhism doesn't do it. Hinduism doesn't. Islam doesn't do it. Only Christianity. says, simul justus et. Picator. And that became, and that phrase became, the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. And it's why you're sitting in this church today. Now one last thing about this and then, and then we'll move on to what fuels secrecy and denial. Uh, the word righteous, I know, like, when, when I hear when I use the word righteous, you think of it as a merely religious word. If there were a word that could use a PR firm working for it, that word could use a PR firm because nothing good comes to your mind when you think of righteous. But what righteous really means is to be found worthy. So, like, like, like think about it this way. Imagine a young man asks a girl out on a date, and she says yes. Do, do young guys do that anymore? Do they ask girls out on a date? Anyway, imagine a young guy asks a girl on a date, and she says yes. What she's doing, you see, is she's affirming his righteousness, meaning she's saying, I find you worthy of a date with me. That's what righteousness means. Imagine you go apply for a job. You go to an interview, and at the end of, in, at the, end of the interview, the company says to you, we want to hire you. What they're saying is you're righteous meaning that you're worthy of working for them. They find you worthy. When God declares you righteous, he's saying you are worthy of a relationship with me. And listen to me, when he does that, you need to understand this, your life's worth has been settled once and for all. Like when the creator says you are worthy, you've maxed out on your worth. No one in the world is more worthy than Christ and you've been given his worthiness. So like you've maxed out on your worthiness. What does it mean to max out on something? Well, if you you max out on your credit card, it means you can't get more credit. If you max out on your Roth IRA contributions, it means you can't contribute more. It means you've reached the limit. There's nowhere else to go. You can't go higher. There isn't any more to have. And you see, when God declares you worthy, your life has been vindicated if you have faith in Christ, you're playing with house money every day of your life. You could become a missionary, you could become a monk, but your life isn't any more worthy than if you were a plumber or a banker. You could become as rich and successful as Jeff Bezos of Amazon, but your life wouldn't be more worthy. You could be adored by thousands of fans, but your life wouldn't be an ounce more worthy. And on the other hand, you could be ridiculed by thousands. You could fail miserably at something. You could commit a crime for which you were jailed. And if you have faith in Christ, your life wouldn't be any less worthy. Why? Because your life's worth is measured on the basis of Christ's obedience, not what anyone says about you, not your success, and not your moral failures. If you believe in Christ, your life has been vindicated, done and dusted. No more to add, nothing to lose, house money. Now that's mind blowing. That's mind blowing. And what I want to do now is I want to look at the enormously practical nature of this mind blowing theological doctrine and the implication that it has for family. Because it has everything to do with how families operate. Let's move on to the second thing I want to talk about. In fact, The belief that fuels secrecy and denial is the opposite of what Paul says in Romans 5.1, justification through faith. It is the opposite of simul justice et peccator. The belief that fuels secrecy and denial in the family is the doctrine of self-justification through performance. That's what fuels secrecy and denial in families. Uh, It's the doctrine of self-justification through performance. And you think to yourself, I didn't know my family lived by any doctrine. That's doctrine. Everybody has doctrine that they live by. Even if they don't know that they're living by it. And self-justification through performance is a doctrine. That's the metaphorical fruit We've said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Self-justification says exactly what Adam and Eve said when they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I do not need God to vindicate me. I do not need God to justify me. I can do that myself. Thank you very much. I don't need God to validate my life through Christ. I can justify myself. It is the rejection of the doctrine of justification through faith. And can you see, because you think about it, can you see why this fuels secrecy and denial. Can you see why secrecy and denial thrive under the belief of self-justification through performance? Can you see it? Just think about it. Think about this. I'm only worthy as my performance. My performance, my morality, my successes, my failures, all of those dictate my worth as a human being. If I believe in self justification through performance. And therefore, our family is only as worthy as our performance. And if someone has failed, if someone's done something wrong, if someone's done something immoral, we have to hide it. We cannot talk about it. We can't even name it. We can't even talk about it among one another because we're only as worthy as our performance. Families like this teach and model a life of secrecy and denial. Because you see, when you boast in your performance, when you boast in being right and doing right, let me tell you what happens with that. Like if you're a dad that boasts in your performance, you can't ever say you're sorry. If you're a husband that boasts in your performance, you can't ever say you're sorry. You can't ever admit you're wrong about anything. Why? Because you're only worthy if you're right. If mom gets depressed, we can't tell anyone else about it because that means she's broken in some way. Couples who live by this belief of self-justification through performance. Couples who live by their belief, they can't seek counseling for their marriage. Or if they do, they have to keep it secret because having trouble in your marriage means that you aren't okay. It's shameful. You aren't right. If you live by your performance, you also die by your performance. And so does your family. And I want to just give you four ways. I want to, give, I want to outline four consequences of families. Who live in secrecy and denial? How families die in secrecy and denial because they define themselves by they, they boast in their performance. Here's four ways. Let me give you the first one secrecy and denial teaches children that failure is devastating. It teaches children that failure is devastating. If we can't talk about failure, moral failures, whatever kinds of failure, if we can't talk about failure, if parents can't ever admit their own flaws, if grandma's alcoholism is so terrible that it can't be talked about, it can't be named, then these things must be so terrible, failure must be so devastating that it must be avoided at all costs, which puts enormous pressure on everyone in the family. I have to succeed. I have to always be worthy. If I fail, I must be a failure. That's what the doctrine, that's what rejecting the doctrine of justification by faith does to a family. Here's the second thing. Secrecy and denial imprisons families in dungeons of shame. It imprisons a family in a dungeon of shame. Because when we can't talk about stuff, it must be because it's too shameful to be discussed. So I have to keep all of my failures to myself. I can't talk about the complexity of being human with anyone. I can't talk about the temptations and the struggles and all of that. I can't talk about any of that. I can't talk about the places i failed. Because it's too shameful. You know, You know, a very practical place this plays itself out in a lot of families. I've known lots of families over the years. Lots of people over the years whose families couldn't talk about sex. And what do you think happens to kids in those kinds of families that can't talk about sex because it's it's so shameful? What happens to those kinds of families as they go through puberty and experience sexual desire? Well, on the one hand, they think these desires must be so shameful, I have to keep them to myself. Yet at the same time, those desires are so powerful, I can't stop myself which usually ends up in addictive use of pornography or being sexually exploited by boyfriends or girlfriends. may even make it difficult for people to enjoy sex when they get married. If sex has been so shameful and so taboo all of my life that we couldn't talk about it, how does it all of a sudden become permissible and right and enjoyable when I get married, you see? This is what secrecy and denial does to family. Here's the third thing. It creates secrecy and denial, create a traumatic emotional equilibrium that becomes normative. Uh, It creates secrecy and denial, create a traumatic emotional equilibrium that becomes normative, meaning that the trauma and the pain that comes with whatever the trauma, whatever the secrecy and denial around the family is, the trauma and the pain that comes with it is what people in the family become most comfortable with. Let me give you an example. If dad is a raging alcoholic and none of us can talk about it, the chaos that his alcoholism creates in the home begins to feel normal. And kids who come out of such homes tend to recreate that chaos in their own adult lives, because that's their emotional equilibrium. That's what feels normal to them. And so they marry chaotic people, because chaos is normal. And when that marriage comes to an end, they marry another chaotic person, and they don't even do that consciously. It's just that chaos seems normal to them, and so chaotic people seem normal. That's who they're drawn to. It's who they're naturally attracted to. If no one deals with dad's alcoholism, if no one says, this isn't normal, this isn't good, dad needs to get help, or he can't live with us until he does, If nobody says that, kids don't know any difference. And all of the chaos of dad's alcoholism, all of that becomes normal. All of that trauma just becomes normal. And kids tend to repeat that trauma over and over and over in their lives. They get stuck in it because that's their emotional equilibrium. Here's a fourth thing. Secrecy and denial inhibit... Intimacy in a marriage, in a family, because intimacy involves forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Secrecy and denial inhibit intimacy in a couple, in a family, because intimacy involves forgiveness, mercy, and grace. You see, failure is so terrible, I can never let you see my brokenness. And I sure don't want to see your brokenness. And if I do see your brokenness, I don't know what to do with it because I've never been taught what to do with it. I can't forgive you. I can't show you mercy. I can't show you grace. And so your failure has to be punished, which of course makes family life impossible because husbands and wives and children, they're all human beings. And human beings fail. They make bad decisions sometimes. And you know what human beings do to one another? Even if we love one another, we hurt one another deeply at times. And you see, intimacy is loving people, listen to me on this, because this is a really important distinction. Intimacy is loving people, not in spite of their flaws, but with their flaws. Do you understand that's how Christ loves you? He doesn't love you in spite of your flaws. He loves you with your flaws. That's what intimacy is. That's what it means to love a husband, love a wife, love a child, love a parent. Intimacy means to love people with their flaws. See, if I don't trust you enough to let you see my flaws, and if you don't trust me enough to let me see your deepest struggles and your insecurities and your patterns of sin, we can never really be intimate with one another because we're both pretending we're people that we aren't. Inhibits intimacy. Those Those are just four consequences of living in secrecy and denial. There are more. If you grew up in a family with lots of secrets and lots of denial, you could probably come up with things that I didn't come up with. Those are just the ones that I have time to talk about today. But you see, if you live by performance, you die by performance. If you deny the doctrine of justification by faith, you have no choice but to believe in the idea of self justification through my performance. And you and everyone you know will die by it. Last thing what's the cure? What's the cure for secrecy and denial? Well, the cure for secrecy and denial in a family is boasting in the cross, not in my performance. It's living out the doctrine of justification by faith. Think about Luther's slogan again, Simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just simultaneously righteous, and a sinner at the same time. See, if I understand that I am as worthy as I will ever be because of my faith in Christ, if I understand that I have maxed out my worthiness, even though I'm a sinner, I'm free to let my guard down. I'm free to tell you, I was wrong, I blew it. I'm free to say to my kids, our family comes from a long line of alcoholics. I have to admit, I'm an alcoholic too, if that's true of me. I'm free to say, I struggle with depression. Or I'm free to say to my friends and family members, yeah, we're getting marriage counseling. I'm free to say to my kids, listen, you're going to fail sometimes. You're not going to succeed at everything. You're not going to be good at everything. You're going to make some very bad decisions at some points in your life. And by the way, son, daughter, this idea that your teacher is filling your mind with, that you can be anything you put your mind to is a load of hooey. You can't be anything you put your mind to, and that's okay because you're human. So just get a C at your art class and let's move on because that's not your thing. Or science, or or whatever. It's incredibly practical this doctrine of justification by faith, and it's incredibly freeing. And no other religion in the world can do this. If you practice Buddhism, you can't be, you can't be this open. If you practice Islam, you can't be like this. You can't. Only Christianity allows you to be this free. And there's this verse in the, in the New Testament in the book of James, and it comes out of this doctrine. And it comes after a bunch of verses in which James is telling people, he says, he says, be patient with one another, church. Don't grumble about one another in the church. Why? Why does, why does James say, you're gonna have to be patient with one another and not grumble about one another? Why does he say that? Simil, Eustace, et Picantor. Yeah, these people are Christians, and yes, they've been declared righteous, but they are obnoxious sinners because they're human. So they're gonna get on your nerves sometimes. Anyway, he comes to a place in this line of thought that he says this. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Very realistic, (laughs) isn't it? How freeing is that? What's the assumption? The assumption is you're going to fail, you're going to sin, you're going to blow it. You ain't all that girlfriend. Take off the mask of perfection. Stop hiding. Stop trying to pretend like you've got it all together. Come out from behind. That's the assumption. Because yes, you've been declared righteous, but at the same time, you're a broken sinner. And so, talk about it. And let me finish this verse. James says, "Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed." In other words, what he means by healed, he's not talking about, you know, healing of disease and sickness or uh, of uh, you know uh, some physical disability. He's not talking. about He's saying, be healed of your brokenness and be made whole. That's what Christ wants to do in people. He wants to move us toward wholeness. Do You understand that? He wants to repair what's broken in you. And you see, your stuff, whatever your stuff is... Whatever it is that you deal with, it won't go away in secrecy and denial. It will not be healed in isolation. We need one another. We need people with whom we can say, I've blown it again. I fell off the wagon. We're struggling in our marriage. I'm depressed. My business went under. We need people like that who are not going to judge us, who aren't going to give us some Christian cliche or an easy answer about what verses to memorize or what words to use in our prayers that will make it all go away. But we need people who with grace and compassion and mercy will pray for us And who will walk alongside us. And who will love us with our failures and our issues and our sins. And who will help us because they know, they know what it's like to be human too. Justification by faith in what Christ did on the cross is enormously practical. It is enormously powerful. And it is enormously healing. And I'm going to tell you something. What people rail against Christianity about out there in the world, on social media, on television, whatever, whatever they rail about, it's because they don't understand Christianity. They don't understand this doctrine of justification by faith and how profoundly freeing it is. Because as a Christian, I'm not saying to you or anybody else, I got it all together. If you were just like me, God would want you too. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, look at me. If God wants me, he could want you too because I'm broken. Look at me. That's what Christianity is. That's what it is, and it's enormously powerful, and it's enormously healing. Simil, Eustace, et peccator, the one hand righteous, and on the other hand, I'm still a sinner, and that Christ is moving me to wholeness. That's a mind-blowing doctrine that has practical, profound implications in your life. Make the cross your family tree. Like, stop boasting in your performance. Now, let's be honest about something. There are many people that have come to a place in their lives where they've said, yes, I I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe He died on the cross for my sins. But let's be honest that most of us, in fact, I would argue all of us, at times move back and forth between trusting in Christ's performance and my own. Every time I move over here to trusting in myself, every time I do that, I die and the people around me who love me die with me. And every time I move, every time I trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, every time I, I say I'm going to boast in him, I'm not going to boast in anything about me. Like I got nothing. He's got everything. When I say I'm going to boast in him, I find healing. And so do the people around me. They find healing and wholeness as well. Make the cross your family tree. Stop boasting in your performance and your family's performance, and you can come out from behind all of the secrecy and denial, and you can find the wholeness that Christ wants for you and for your family. Bow with me for prayer. We ignore these truths, Lord, we confess that. We ignore these unbelievable truths that we find in Scripture because we think that those aren't real life and that they don't have anything to offer us. And yet, Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen today, these truths, this theology, this doctrine of justification through Christ, through faith in Christ, has all sorts of radical, profound implications for my life and for my family. And so, Lord, I pray that you would drive these truths home. There are people in this room that have grown up in families with such trauma and with such secrecy and denial about the trauma that it's hard for them to hear this truth and to believe it. Lord, I can't communicate it well enough or clearly enough or powerfully enough to drive it into them, to drive it into their minds and their hearts, but I know that your spirit can, and so I pray that you would do that today. Pray that we would become a church that boasts not in ourselves, but only in you and in your performance, in what you've done on the cross, not in our performance. Because you, Lord Jesus Christ, are our hope in what you did on the cross. And your resurrection from the grave, that's our hope. And that alone. We love you. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. and it's In your name we pray. this morning.